Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and this week, my interesting person is Ted Frank. Uh, Ted is the director of litigation at the conservative public interest law firm, Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute, which he actually co-founded in 2019. He successfully argued landmark cases in the Supreme Court and in several federal courts of appeals. Um, he's previously been a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, AEI. Um, he's been profiled in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and GQ. Uh, so he's been, he's been everywhere. He's been a, a great legal thinker for a long time. Um, welcome, welcome, Ted, to uh, to High Noon. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I really wanted to to get you on here to talk about two things. Um, well two and a half, but one is in context. So I want to start out with um, the Jordan Neely case in New York um, and about the the general problem that it reflects. Um, and I want to tie into that topic, something you tweeted out that was um, really you know interesting to me. I mean, interesting and sad. Uh, it's, it's the resignation letter of, of a Chicago prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to read a part of that before we, we get our conversation started. Um, So this is in Chicago, and this is a prosecutor resigning. Um, He said, the current people in charge of the state, including the state attorney's office, suffer from a fundamental misunderstanding. We live in a society with adversarial court and criminal justice processes. Defense attorneys, legal aid clinics, public defenders, defendant advocate groups, they fight like hell to protect the rights of criminal defendants, and they should. Their work is as noble as ours. But we have an obligation to fight like hell on behalf of the people. It should go without saying that this must be done ethically and even-handedly. When both sides vigorously defend their positions, a balance is reached between protecting rights while preserving some sort of order and safety. Once we start doing too much of the defense's job, we pull our, once we pull our punches, once we decide that it's worth taking citizens' lives or risking citizens' lives, we have uh, to have a little social experiment. That balance is lost. Um, that unavoidable consequence is what we're witnessing in real time, an increase in crime of all kinds, businesses and families pulling up stakes, and the bodies piling up. Um, so I, I wanted to, to to ask you about this this background. So we have in a number of these cities, um, basically, DAs that have very little seem to ideologically not want to prosecute crime. We have laws in states like New York, um, like around the the bail reform in New York, that put a revolving door um, on a, on a lot of criminal behavior. Um, and then, and then, on top of all in this entire sort of background, now we have this subway case where we have uh, a marine who, in between tours, who puts a guy who is violently flailing around um, and threatening the whole car in a headlock in concert with, I guess there's a difference between a headlock and a chokehold. I don't know. I'm not an MMA expert, but um, he, he restrains him by putting his arm around his neck in concert with two other people in the subway car, right? So given all that background, what's going on in these DA's offices? How are people who work in these offices dealing with it? Um, and do you foresee anything that, that is going to change the ideological direction, essentially not to deal with increasing crime and disorder in the cities? Yeah, it's interesting. This was like a very conscious policy decision made in the 50s and 60s. And we very quickly learned in the 70s that it did not work and was very counterproductive and led to the the anarchy that was in New York and several other cities throughout the 70s. Uh, And as bad as things are now, they aren't as bad as they were in the 70s, but you could very easily see things getting to that stage and things started to turn around 
in the 80s and 90s uh, as just people got fed up with um, the, these problems, uh, passed laws to, to incarcerate career criminals. Uh, and you had people like Police Commissioner William Bratton in New York uh, who got the free reign he needed from uh, Giuliani and then Bloomberg after him. Uh, I don't know if Bratton was with Bloomberg, but uh, to, 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 to take the steps needed, the broken windows policies needed to, to restore order to the streets and reduce crime. And that involves putting bad people in prison. And we have this movement now that thinks that people shouldn't be in prison uh, and have recognized that uh, district attorneys in many cities and states are, are elected positions that don't get a lot of attention from voters. And with very relatively little money, you can move the needle a lot in these areas by putting into office people who don't believe in incarceration and they will refuse to prosecute uh, fairly serious crimes or, or charge them down or uh, otherwise take steps that um, put a lot of bad people on the streets who are now committing a lot of crime. What are the boundaries of prosecutorial discretion here? Um, because it seems that in a lot of places, this is bordering on just basically reversing what the legislature has made crimes, right? But on the other hand, of course, you know, not every crime could ever be prosecuted. There's going to, uh, you know, by necessity, um, there there is a judgment call to be made um, in, in prosecuting any particular crime. So what are the limits of that? Because it almost seems like the the discretion that is sort of obvious and granted in good faith is being wielded to such a degree that the legislature has criminalized, let's say, you know, knocking over, (laughs) knocking over a bodega, right? Like, and that's not getting prosecuted and no one's going to jail for it. I mean, has the legislature really been usurped here? At what point is there some kind of, of, uh, you know, sort of balance of power problem? Well, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting question. And there's always been just laws on the books that prosecutors aren't prosecuting, either because they don't believe in their constitutionality or there just wasn't cause for it. So, for example, the anti-sodomy laws that Lawrence v. Texas overturned a, a decade or so ago, uh, those were not laws that were being enforced. They were on the books in, in several states. And in fact, even in Texas with Lawrence, it was prosecuted because um, they wanted the test case and they called up the the police and say, come arrest us for this. Um, And without that, there wouldn't have been a prosecution. Um, So there there have always been laws that prosecutors aren't uh, pushing or, or prosecuting for, and, and, and those are judgment calls, right? They, they, they have limited resources and you wanna, you, you wanna put the bodies on the things that make the most difference. What we have here, what's new here is just the fundamental um, depolicing, decarceration, decriminalization of things that we used to consider fairly serious crimes. And when you say, okay, we're, we're not, 
going to treat shoplifting as more than a, a civil offense until it gets to a thousand dollars. Um, suddenly you have hundreds of people who make a living from shoplifting and they'll, they'll take $500 of stuff from one store and they'll go on to the next store. And, but they're always with under the limit. So even if they're getting arrested, uh, they're not getting charged or not getting jailed. Um, and these prosecutor offices, I don't think have thought through, um, the dynamic effects of refusing to prosecute these things. Um, and it's a problem when it, it's a decision to charge down on, on some fairly violent crimes. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, these are elect in, 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 in some jurisdictions, these are elected positions and they, they, they are very straightforward. We come to office to, to make these quote unquote reforms and uh, the people are getting what they voted for good and hard. Um, and, you know, and, and there can be a backlash. So in San Francisco, they've removed Shea Sabudan and, uh, and, and his replacement uh, is unwinding some of these, these problems. Um, but a lot of good prosecutors left the office while he was there. And uh, there, there's still just a general um, view in San Francisco uh, on, on sort of tolerating a certain degree of public disorder, having uh, sites where people can overdose on fentanyl for free. Um, so um, you, you need a Giuliani, you need a Bloomberg, you need a, a city government in place that says, we don't want this. We, we, we don't want this level of crime. We don't want these policies that result in this level of crime. Yeah. I mean, I, when we're talking about the attitudes of people um, towards this kind of acceptance of higher crime rates and, and more general like feeling of disorder, I've, I've been sort of positively uh, surprised because um, for sure, the Jordan Neely case, all the usual suspects are trying to make this into Summer of Floyd round two, right? Um, the New York mm-hmm. Times has written about it. Um, the, I mean, all of the squad members. Actually, I have to say the New York Times wrote a profile that really was a profile in sort of the failures to, to lock up or commit this guy, Jordan Neely. Um, but I'm sure they don't see it that way. Uh, but they did a pretty good profile. Um we have the squad members. I mean, um, I think uh, saying that this is a lynching and trying to make it into a racial case. We have a few subway protesters who most of uh, like the, where there were arrests made um, at, at the protest for stopping the subway. But it hasn't it doesn't feel even in this city, it doesn't feel like they're really getting purchase with ordinary people. And, and that leads me to think that maybe ordinary people don't need to go all the way back to. 1984 um, levels of crime before they get fed up with the fact that they have to, you know, riding the subway um, comes with it, you know, the, the duty to to guess as to whether one particular schizophrenic screaming person um, or heavily drugged out person, uh, this one is actually violent or not um, in any given day. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I mean, it's fascinating that this guy left such a sort of digital paper trail of um, Reddit users who said, hey, I ran into this guy on the subway and and boy, I stay away from him. Uh, he almost pushed me onto the tracks or he started shouting in my face or, um, you know, people have known about this guy for years and years and years. And the New York social services were there for him. Uh, they said, okay, here, here, you, you need to dry out. You need the drug rehab. Here's the place you can stay. Here's the food you can eat. Um, and he lasted 13 days there and flooded because he preferred the drugs. Um, and we as a society have, have just decided that we're going to let people live on the streets uh, in, under the influence of some really bad drugs uh, under the influence of a really bad mental illness, and we're just going to shrug our shoulders about it rather than involuntarily uh, commit them for their own good. Um, and uh, that was also another policy decision made in the 50s or 60s, and that one still hasn't, we haven't come back around to the idea of, of bringing back asylums. Uh, uh, Bernard Harcourt has written about this and, and, and several people at the Manhattan Institute have also. It's, it's something we need to think about, but uh, I don't see a political movement to do that. And it's hard to see the political movement to do that when um, an AOC is treating this as not a, a, a failure of our mental health uh, systems, not of our under-incarceration problem, but of oh, we need more social services and more social spending and, and we need to punish the people uh, who, who uh, bravely stepped forward and, and, and protected uh, people in the subway who had, a, a, I think, a reasonable fear of being uh, victims of violence. Um, we'll get we'll get to sort of that reasonable fear in a moment, but you you said an under incarceration problem, um, and I think that might be foreign sounding to a lot of people, right? They've been hearing for the last twenty years that we have an over incarceration problem. So, what do you mean by that? Well, I we've we're generally you you look at who's committing murders, uh, and you find out that they've been arrested dozens of times and have been charged many many times with violent crimes and then got very light sentences for those things, even after they've repeatedly proved that uh, they could not participate in society. And if we, you know, it, it, it's, the people in our prisons are generally there for violent reasons. We have a larger prison population than, than most old world countries in Europe and Asia. Uh, but in the new world, for whatever reason, the murder rate, the homicide rate is much, much higher. We have a lot more violence. Um, and that requires incapacitation to take the people who are violent, who will not participate in society uh, and live by societal norms and, 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 and won't act without hurting people and say, OK, you, you don't get to participate in society and we're going to lock you in a box. Um, and there's this legend out there that we have lots and lots of people in prison for nonviolent crimes or for drug possession. And the reality is, is that's not the case. Uh, the people who go to jail for possession go for very short times. There are not that many of them. Uh, they are the people who are in prison are there for violent crimes. And to say that we need to reduce 
to, to, to get these people out of prison is to say we need to lose them on to society when they haven't been, re, been rehabilitated. They haven't learned how to function in society. They haven't uh, stopped being violent felons. And when we let them out after a few years and they go right back to committing crimes, why did we let them out in the first place? Why weren't we giving them the incapacitation that they demonstrated that they needed? Um, so there, there's this large political movement against over-incarceration, against mass incarceration, and really our problem is one of under-incarceration. We, for the last 10 years, we are not putting violent criminals in prison uh, the way they should be, and there have been lots and lots of innocent victims because of that, and you see it in the news every day. So uh, apparently grand jury is going to decide uh, potentially this week or next week um, whether or not to charge the Marine um, with, with the death of Jordan Neely. Um, I am actually have my doubts. I mean uh, about whether or not he'll even be charged. Um, Cause I, I really feel like even if, if even in liberal New York, right. Um, there just isn't the sentiment around here that like this was an inappropriate action that this Marine took. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it just hasn't taken off. Like it, it really does seem like a handful of screeching activists with very little backing in a way that, you know, 2020 very much did not feel that way. Right. Um, so, but let's say he gets charged. What, what would this case turn on? And, and um, I, I feel a little bit, sort of sadly prophetic because I had uh, Heather McDonald on last week um, and we were talking on Monday, this incident happened, I think on Wednesday. Um, and I asked her what happens to the Bernie gets of 2023. Um, Cause we're going to have one if this continues. Um, and we talked about that and, and uh, she had a pretty dark prediction about it. And I did as well. And I'm, I'm sort of uh, maybe like I said, a little bit revising my opinion op- uh, towards optimism, but what would this case hinge on what would he have to show in order um you know what, what's his case for not being um guilty guilty of murder in this case because jordan neely died as a result the coroner says as a result of his actions well it, it probably wouldn't be a murder case it, it, it would probably be an involuntary manslaughter case um but the charges are going to be political charges it's going to be a political decision whether or not to charge him uh, the fact that it's going to a grand jury, the reality is, is that grand juries do what prosecutors want them to do. They don't rebel against the prosecutor. The prosecutor controls what evidence the grand jury sees. They, they control what the grand jury hears. And the, the the joke is, is that a prosecutor can get an indictment of a ham sandwich. Um, and so you have a, a politically ambitious prosecutor here uh, who's been assigned to this case. And uh, is he going to see um, his, his future in making the squad happy with him and bringing the charges? Or is he anticipating, boy, it's going to be hard to convince a jury uh, that this, this upstanding Marine did something wrong, especially now that we, we've 
seen more recent video of sort of the aftermath of it, where the Marine, rather than great, this guy's dead now, is is putting um, Neely on his side in, in, in the appropriate position and, and, and trying to help him. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, while the, 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 the hold may have contributed to his death, there may have been other causes. We don't have the toxicology reports yet. Uh, I don't think anybody there was trying to kill him, but whether that was an application of deadly force that, that was unreasonable under the circumstances, um, you know, it's hard to see why there wouldn't be reasonable doubt there. But um, if, a, if a prosecutor wants to make AOC happy with him uh, and, 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 and thinks that that's where the, the trend is, um, you, you could see charges being brought. Uh, how, how do you think this is going to play out then in the, the court of public opinion? Um, I, I almost, at this point, I almost would think uh, the more that we talk about this, the more the left is on their heels to a certain extent about this. Um, it seems to be bringing to a head a lot of the conversations that we were having earlier about the general disorder um, that had been happening maybe in, in some in the context of, of um you know, San Francisco, especially, and and drug use and homeless on the streets, um, but had kind of just quietly. I mean, look, look at how Biden has reversed himself, or you know, the, uh, a lot of sort of uh, mainstream Democrats have backed away from the the defund the police. They pretend that that never happened. Um, I mean, this this is really all about. Uh, it seems to me two different trend lines, and which one is. Um, you know, sort of gets out ahead of the other one by what time, right? Um, how bad does the crime have to get and the general disorder have to get before the backlash, even among Democrats, becomes high enough that uh, these kinds of policies become politically toxic and maybe we return to a sort of, you know, 90s era where even even Democrats, even Hillary and Biden, right, we're talking about uh, super predators and, and um, passing the 1994 crime bill, right? So, um where do you think we are in that cycle? I mean, obviously a lot has changed since the 90s in terms of our, our underlying cultural divisions and our, our underlying conflict of how we see the United States, how we see race relations in the United States. Um, but this this conversation like seems to me to have gone suspiciously silent until sort of the the squad and, and types have brought this this case, the Jordan Neely case, to, to the nation, really, to the front pages of the nation. I'm not sure this conversation is going to go how the left wants it to go. I mean, it's interesting because we have a, a generation of college-educated edu- uh, Generation Zers who, who seem to think that, of course, somebody can get up there and rant and rave in, in, in a subway car and threaten people. I, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating relative, you know, how the intersectionality of this is because you, you have um, people on the left saying we need to criminalize catcalling and, and other harassment of women on the street. Uh, but at the same time, uh, people on the left saying, but it's it's perfectly okay to to have women in fear of getting pushed onto subway tracks. Um, 
and 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 so you have that internal conflict and 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 who wins out on that and whether the racial dynamics of this uh that it, it that uh it's it's always bad to call a police on the on a black man uh ha- still has some some uh currency and I'm not sure that it won't get worse before it gets better. Uh, the decision was made in Chicago to uh, elect the guy who was more pro-crime. Uh, Krasner got himself reelected in Philadelphia. And I don't see, you know, while Adams won in New York, uh, he's, he, he hasn't sort of moved in, in, in the, the way that you might expect. And, and, you know, one reason that Neely was on the streets is because uh, New York City got sued by the Legal Aid Society and, and some large law firms acting, quote unquote, pro bono uh, to prohibit them from running warrant checks on people that are stopped. Uh, and so Neely had a warrant out for him, but the police aren't bringing him in when they're stopping him. Um, and uh, so the, 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 the warrants don't seem to matter. Um, and, and, and nobody said we should fight this lawsuit war and we need to enforce our warrants. Um, it, it's hard to imagine a, a Giuliani or Bloomberg, uh, rolling over and, and agreeing to an injunction on, on calling in warrants. So, um, it, 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 it's not clear to me that that the public in deep blue cities where the problems are the worst have uh, have, have have reached these thing reached the, the the tipping point to 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 go back and I think also the the political divisions the polarization is is much different now than it was in the eighties and the nineties where you know Biden was a fairly conservative Democrat for the first two decades of his career. So it was in his keeping to complain about super predators and to complain about busing and to complain about integration. Um, and that's not the Biden we have now. The Biden we have now has a DOJ uh, proposing rules that, that say that there shouldn't be enforcement based on geography. Uh, the fact that one area has more crime than another doesn't mean that you send more police there. Um, so, you know, we we I, there, 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 I, I think there's, to me at least, there's a sense it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think in red states or blue areas in red states, what we've seen is we've seen the Missouri legislature step in and say the St. Louis prosecutor isn't prosecuting crime the way we want. And we're going to legislate her out of the office um, and, and basically force her right resignation, because if she hadn't resigned, the, the, the state legislature would have taken over prosecuting in that area. Um, and Texas is threatening to do the same thing in Austin and other blue areas in Texas. So, um, and I think DeSantis removed a prosecutor in, 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 in Florida. So um, we, we could see some more polarization and, and, and we could have this laboratory of democracy where uh, Philadelphia continues to not prosecute crime and, and other places um, have the backlash and turn things around. Yeah, I have a few questions, but first I want um, 
can you can you explain this equity policing proposal from from the DOJ? Uh, because it seems like they're directly telling police that it's un. Is this an equal protection argument? I, I can't remember what the legal hook of this is, even. But the- I'm not sure that they've quite yet made a legal hook. I think it's just an equity hook, uh, and and whether the the civil rights division starts prosecuting it, I, I don't know. I'll I'll have to start looking at it closely. But in in other contexts. Um, you, you've had administrations going back to the Obama administration and their Department of Education saying, wait, why are, are black kids being suspended at a greater rate than white kids? You need to cut back on your discipline of black kids and make it more equi- racially equitable. Um, and uh, and uh, that basically gave carte blanche in some school districts for the black kids to beat up on the Asian kids. Uh, so... Um, and if you go to any inner city school and, and, and spend a day there, uh, the idea that the problem of that inner city school is that there's too much discipline um, is, is really dumbfounding. And I, I can't imagine anybody, including the teachers there, thinking that. But um, we, we, there, there, there's just the, the sort of Kennedyist idea that any racial disparity has to be the the result of racism rather than uh, differences in group behavior. And, uh, and if one group is uh, committing crime at a greater rate than another group, uh, when you say, well, it's bad for you to be arresting those groups at different rates, um, you're, 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 basically sort of demanding policies that, that result in, in Soros type prosecutors that decarcerate. Yeah. Like my, my understanding when I briefly read over this DOJ document was they're basically telling you the police that it would be illegal for them to go where there is crime. In other words, to like do them one of the more, the, the least controversial aspects of, of broken windows policing, right. Or, or the policing revolution in the nineties was, Getting ahead of, and putting cops, you know, um, on on the corners where there was going to be crime, um, and it seems like this this DOJ statement, order, proposed regulation. I actually have to look into what the actual basis of it is, but they're they're saying that it's basically um, it's inequitable to put the police where the crime is happening if if those areas are not perfectly racially proportionate with the population. It, it, it's a problem, and we we sort of need to get Kendiism out of our discourse and out of our policy, especially out of our policy making. But um, it, it's a problem that it, it's become uh, coded that that polite people don't mention that there are just huge racial disparities in uh, crime victimization and crime uh, perpetration. So the other question I had is, what's the role of the new generation of lawyers here? Um, we've all seen, you know, the the law school videos, right, from Stanford and elsewhere. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, the the um, no warrant checking, right, comes from this like legal aid fund um, and that was supported by some major law firms. Um, we've we've seen that 
those major law firms are unwilling sometimes to work with um, even great conservative lawyers who have you know won cases in front of the Supreme Court. They're getting pushed out. Um, what is the role of sort of new woke <laughs> lawyers um, in the DOJ, uh, in big law firms, um, and in prosecutors' offices? I mean, it's interesting. You, you hear that at top law schools, uh, the, the the students are sort of um, uh, uh, shunning the people who want to be prosecutors or shunning the idea that prosecuting is, is a noble profession. And that that's just a, a, a huge shift from uh, decades ago where it, it was viewed as a very prestigious career stepping stone and, 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 um, and, and people who could make much, much more money would rather be a prosecutor and, and, and get that sort of experience. Um, and to, to treat prosecutors, um, uh, you know, as, as, as a, as if 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 it's really the case that the next generation feels that being a prosecutor is is um, is a damnable um, idea, um, and and people are deterred from going into it, we're going to have lower quality prosecutors, and uh, that will affect how effective our prosecutorial offices are. Um, but also, these people are going to be judges; they're going to get appointed to the bench. Um, and, you know, there are conservative law students out there, uh, but um, it, 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 it's always been a minority and it's becoming a smaller and smaller minority. And I think we need to really worry about that. And we need to worry about what our next generation of lawyers is going to look like, that, that there are only two schools out there that can ar- even arguably be branded as conservative and by conservative, it, it just means that they're not as liberal as, as the other law schools, because even at a, a Scalia law school, um, conservatives are, are less than half of, of, of the student body. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the second one, Notre Dame? You're right. Okay. <laughs> um, so while I have you here, um, I want to switch gears and ask you about something um, that I think has been quite difficult for a lot of people to really get a handle on. Um, And that's all of the stories, I mean, seemingly in a coordinated way coming out in part first against sort of just conservative justices, right? Saying that they are corrupt, that they inappropriately accepted money and gifts of various kinds, um, starting with the Thomas uh, allegations from ProPublica, and then um, moving on to Justice Roberts' wife, who's committed the crime of also being a successful lawyer and and making a lot of money. uh, but now we have these these uh, um, this story by Luke Rosiak over at the Daily Wire uh, on Sotomayor and the fact that she was getting checks from um, a publishing company while the publishing company um, came like the, uh, you know wanted their case to go before the Supreme Court um, and there's no there's no record of which way she voted on those cert petitions but. Um, potentially like their interests were in front of her. She did not recuse herself. Um, so one, how, how are ethics uh, of this type handled in the Supreme court and in federal courts more generally? Um, what do you think about some of the legislative attempts to impose 
a new code of ethics on the legal profession? Um, and where do you see some of these these uh, stories going? If 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 it seems like we are going to now scrutinize um, judges in the court in the same way uh, in the media as we do politicians. Well, I, I, I think um, I, I think it's important to understand that the attack on Supreme Court ethics is really just an attack on the Supreme Court and and an effort to try to find ways to um, undermine the legitimacy of the court, you know, and and sort of set up the dominoes for ignoring court orders in the future, or packing the court in the future, or impeaching a justice. Um, it's, um, I, I, I think it's important to sort of recognize, um, that first of all, the judicial branch holds itself to a higher ethical standard than, um, I, any of the other branches. And that, that's a self-policing thing. Uh, if a judge holds one share of stock in a company, uh, the, the fact that they have this $37 interest uh, in the company of, of, of which this minor lawsuit might move the share price, not even a penny, that's enough to force recusal. Uh, but where the Supreme Court differs from lower courts, if a lower court judge recuses, uh, you, you just plop in the next judge. If a Supreme Court justice recuses from a cert petition decision um, and and Again, the Supreme Court has discretionary jurisdiction. You petition for certiorari. Uh, four justices have to vote to hear the case. But if a justice recuses himself or herself, um, that's the same as voting no on the cert petition because you still need four votes. And if a justice recuses herself, uh, now you, have, you need four out of eight justices instead of four out of nine justices. Uh, if a justice recuses themselves from the underlying merits of the case, uh, well, you still need five votes to reverse. You need five out of eight instead of five out of nine. So a recusal is the same as a no vote or a vote to affirm. So because a 4-4 vote will affirm the lower court decision or a three, three out of seven justices vote to hear the case, the case won't be heard. So um, recusal necessarily has to work differently at the Supreme Court because it, it, you can't really use it to um, uh, uh, to, 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 to manipulate things. So the, you can't have the, the, the same sort of corrections that you can have in the lower courts. Uh, but, you know, there are no, no such limitations in Congress. If somebody owns an oil property and they're voting on oil, uh, or if they own oil stocks or if they own uh, uh, computer chip companies or, or Tesla stock and they're, they're voting for electric vehicle uh, subsidies, you know, people might scoff, but we treat that as a political question rather than um, something else. Uh, so um, in general, the Supreme Court and lower courts have higher ethical standards than the other two branches of government, um, and they've been self-enforcing, uh, and they do the best they can to recuse themselves where there, there, there's even the question uh, of a conflict. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the Harlan Crow thing, wow, it, 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 you know, it looks bad for a justice to get all this largesse. But on the other hand, Crow isn't in front of the court. Um, and Thomas isn't voting to like let Crow out of prison or, or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's just a, a really remarkably generous friendship. Uh, and um, I don't, you know, Thomas was Thomas long before he ran into Crow. And, uh, you know, I, I think the interesting thing about the Thomas Crow situation was, is that Thomas was disclosing the gifts he got from Crow. Um, and he did that for years and nobody noticed. And then in 2003, um, somebody or the other ran a story about the, all the gifts Crow was giving to Thomas and, 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 you know, and, and use that to make, try to make Thomas look bad and use that to make Crow look bad. And Thomas went to uh, people at the Supreme Court and he says, do I have to disclose this stuff? And they told him, no, you don't have to disclose it. So he stopped disclosing it. Um, and, you know, now the rules have changed. There are more, uh, as of this month or last month, there are more stringent disclosure rules. And Thomas will disclose these things going forward to the extent that they still occur or uh, whether or not uh, Crow has been scared, Thomas and Crow have been scared away from, from having a good friendship. Um, you know, the, um, it's um, the, these sorts of relationships with billionaires are things that politicians have all the time. Um, but we expect different behavior from our justices. Uh, on the other hand, last this week or last week, uh, Sotomayor uh, goes to a charitable event with, uh, with uh, Joe Biden and, and nobody says boo. So nobody actually cares about the ethics of the Supreme Court or the, the, the possibility of conflicts of interest or the appearance of impropriety. It, it's being used as a cudgel to uh, attack conservative justices and a conservative court. Yeah, you'd have to be blind not to notice that, that we never had this conversation before the composition of the court changed to reflect a conservative majority. Um, you, you sort of hinted at this in, in your answer just now, but um, what is this setting up uh, in our discourse? Um, do you think it's packing the court or do you think it's just starting to ignore if the conservative, right, um, if the conservative majority strikes down a, a law that the left really likes or, or vice versa? Um, you know, where, where are we going on, on this? The Supreme Court cannot enforce its own edicts. Yeah, I think it's 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 an attempt to um, change the balance of power and the separation of powers with the Supreme Court. If Congress can create an independent entity that oversees Supreme Court ethics, now the Supreme Court uh, answers to this other body, whether it's in the judicial branch or in the the uh, executive branch or the legislative branch, uh, and um, and you can have sort of weird enforcement where, aha, you, you didn't dot your I or cross your T, you called an LLC a corporation, and you didn't remember that the 
the LLC changed identity and you wrote the wrong thing down in your disclosure report. Well, what are the consequences of that? And, you know, is, is that something that's going to be used to sort of end life tenure for justices? Oh, you, you, um, you, you, you um, had this niggling uh, disclosure violation. Um, go, uh, you, 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 you lose your seat on the court. Or it's, it's just, again, to sort of um, set things up so that if the Supreme Court has less prestige, uh, is less respected in America than when uh, a future Democratic Senate says, okay, we want 15 justices now, um, there's less outrage that they're packing the court. Um, and you you see the media sort of cooperating with this by pretending that pack the court means something different than uh, add more justices to the nine justice Supreme Court to to to, to sort of swing the vote. Um, and so you know we've had this long-standing escalation of the Supreme Court nomination process and composition process where, uh, you know, in 1986, Scalia can be waved through 100 nothing because, well, he's, you know, he was a law professor and he's been a judge and, and he's highly qualified and, 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 well, look, he's the first Italian-American. Um, of course, we're going to, Reagan wants him. Of course, we're going to approve him to, um, oh, Bork is going to replace a moderate on the court. Um, well, that, that's going to change the composition of the court and we're going to put all of our gunpowder uh, on the left to stopping that nomination from happening. And, and they succeeded in doing that and, and getting a different moderate appointed instead of uh, Bork and Ginsburg. Um, and, you know, over the years, you've seen Republicans try to um, reduce the heat. So Clinton got his two nominations, even, you know, through with, with uh, flying colors without a lot of protest, even though Ginsburg had this ACLU record, even though, you know, if, if you pulled a Bork on Ginsburg and held her writings against her, uh, she never would have been confirmed and she would have been uh, damned by mainstream America and it would have been a scandal, but Orrin Hatch didn't want to do that. Um, and then it turned around and when Bush became president and, you know, Obama and is is voting to filibuster and prevent a vote on on Alito, um, and and so um, and and you had other uh, situations uh, in the lower courts where um, you know there there were fights back and forth about lower court nominations ever since uh, 1984. Um, again, the Republicans tried to reduce the heat on this. Uh, there's a Clinton nomination that had held up. George W. Bush nominated Roger Gregory, after, repeated Clinton's nomination of Roger Gregory to get him through. Um, they agreed not to uh, get rid of the filibuster and, and withdraw some nominations. Uh, again, uh, Democrats held up. Nevertheless, several other um, uh, potential nominations um, and at, at, at some point, you know, in this tit for tat game, you can say, okay, I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to cooperate. And if the other side keeps saying, okay, I'm defecting, um, 
you, you have to say, okay, my strategy now is also to defect. Um, and that's what McConnell did in the second Obama term. And people are very upset about that without remembering that it was the Democrats who escalated every single time. Um, and, uh, and voters voted in Republican senates who, who let these things uh, go the way they have gone now. And, and we have a, a uh, six Republican appointed justice majority, many of the justices of whom are, are you know, constitutional conservatives. Well, on that, both, uh, I guess, positive and negative, or both uh, optimistic and pessimistic note, um, thank you, Ted Frank, so much for coming on High Noon. Once again, um, Ted Frank is the Director of Litigation at Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute, which is his public interest law firm. Um, and he, he has a long, I guess I laid it out at the beginning, is a long uh, history of arguing very important cases, both in front of the Supreme Court and in courts of appeals. So, um go ahead and check out his law firm and his work. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for, for coming on High Noon again. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.